Father, thank you again and again for this time here on Sunday morning to worship you. Lord, to worship you in Sunday school, I thank you for what was happening this morning before the service and the, the great conversation that took place there and the prayer. Lord, thank you for the greeting. Thank you for all the, the people who have come this morning to serve. And, and Lord, thank you for these dear brothers and sisters who have gathered on this day. Lord, would you bless our time? I just echo what's been prayed before. Lord, bless our time. We are weak and needy people, and I am above all else this morning. And so would you, would you come and meet us right where we are? And we trust that you will. In, in Jesus' name, amen. One of the worst disasters in U.S. history was the Johnstown flood of 1889. And I just started reading a book about it, and I found this article this morning. And it was the late 1800s. Johnstown was a thriving town. Um, it was a modest town. It was in western Pennsylvania, just 14 miles away from this town, was the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club, which was an exclusive club that, that took an old dam, an old earth dam, and restored it and built up this big, beautiful lake and put expensive fish in it. And, and they started this club. And it had people on the, for pleasure sailing, ice boating, and game fish. And some of the people that were involved in this club were and, Andrew Carnegie, Henry Frick, and Andrew Mellon. Really the who's who of that day in the steel industry and beyond. Well, some people in Johnstown feared because as this dam was restored and all this water built up, they questioned the, the structure of the dam. And, and they warned the club, hey, you've got to take care of this dam. It's, it's going to be a problem. And there were floods that would come. And with floods, there would be little breaches in the dam. And at one point, their most prominent member, Daniel Morell, actually sent some people to investigate the structure of this dam and found fatal flaws on, on many occasions and went and talked to them and said, please repair this dam. And in fact, he said, we'll help you pay for it. Even though it was their responsibility, it was their club, it was something that they did. He said, we'll even help you pay for the repairs. But all the warnings were dismissed and year after year passed. And it says that... Um, in May 19, or 1889, there were several days of extraordinarily heavy rains, and by May 31st, management at the club realized the dam was in danger of giving way, but there was little they could do. As Morell had pointed out, the water outlet at the base of the dam had filled, which was what they filled in years before, and the emergency spillway, which had been reduced in size and covered with screens, to prevent the expensive fish from escaping was now clogged with debris. And it was shortly after that, on that fateful day, that the dam burst and 20 million tons of water flooded down on that city, that little town with 2,000 people and, and pretty much everybody died. It was a horrible, tragic circumstance that, that really could have been avoided. But it was, it, just, it was part of their everyday speech. They knew about the dam. They were concerned about it. And 
and you know, warnings had been given, but it just became part of the background noise. And I think today, the danger with such an incredibly familiar story is that we all know it. Most of us do. We've heard it many times, and, and we, can, we can just nod our heads and say, yes, good stuff, without really taking it to heart. And, but there's, a, there's an important message here, and, and I think we have to press through the familiar to appreciate our great and wonderful God and Savior. And so that's what I'm going to encourage us to do today. I've got three points, two questions, a correct answer, and a revealing story. So two questions. Question number one, how do I inherit eternal life? Verse 25, and I hope you have your Bibles open or, or your phones. I'm going to be reading as we go and, and follow with me. Verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So first of all, this was a lawyer who's asking the question. And don't think in terms of lawyers today. This guy was a full-time religious worker. And so his job was to study God's word. He got paid to study the law of God. And so he knew it. He was a Bible scholar. Well, what was his motivation behind the question? He came to Jesus, and it, and it tells us right here that he wanted to test him. Look with me again at verse 25. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test. You can, you can say he stood up in order to put him to the test. His sole purpose was to test Jesus. So don't think that his motives are great here. Um, in fact, in the, in the next chapter, we see Jesus condemning the lawyers. He, was, he starts with condemning the Pharisees, and then a lawyer, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And then Jesus said, woe to you lawyers also. And so they were part of this group of people who were not happy with Jesus. And, and Jesus, so he comes and he attempts to test Jesus but regardless of his motive, his question was simple and profound. Is there a more profound question out there? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Test or no test, he's asking the most important and significant question in the whole world. In every way, heaven and hell are hanging in the balance. Jesus later in John 17 said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. This man is asking, how do I inherit eternal life? Well, what is eternal life? Eternal life is having a relationship with the God of the universe, knowing him, the, the fountain of living water. There is no more important question. Now, he's asked Jesus this amazing question. He's, he's given him a softball pitch. Okay, now knock it out of the park. Here's this question. How do we inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus do? I would expect Jesus to, to launch into an ex explanation. But, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus returned his question with a question of his own. And that's question number two, verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus could have answered his question. But you see what he did? He, he pointed him back to the word of God. He said, 
What does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach? And do you know what Jesus is doing right there? And, and it was wonderful to see, especially knowing that I was going to be up here on Sunday morning preaching this text. He's saying the word of God has everything we need. It's simple. It's understandable. It's clear. What does the Bible say? I don't have to bring all of these extensive arguments. Just what does the Bible say? It's all right there. Isn't that wonderful? We have a word. Just open it up, as Calvin once said, and let the, let the lion come out of the cage. So he points him to the word. So two questions. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And number two, what is written in the law? Next came a correct answer, and that's point number two, verse 27. And he answered him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So what this lawyer, this scholar did, is he scoured the Old Testament in his mind, and he came up with really a summary of the entire law. And in one part, he just quoted from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus chapter 19. And the summary of all that is required of us is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. There it is. That's what he said. Now, when it comes to evangelism, because that's what Jesus is doing here. He's evangelizing. Do you know why it's hard for so many of us to seek to evangelize our friends and family members and coworkers? I think it's because we make it far more complicated than it needs to be. Jesus here does not launch into an exclamation that takes 20 minutes. Jesus simply listened and asked questions. God help us when we're talking to our friends and, and neighbors. Don't, don't be overwhelmed by the idea of evangelism thinking, I've got to have all these answers and I've got to say all these things. Just go armed with some good questions and ready to listen and really listen. And that's what Jesus does. And that's what he does time and time and time again. Well, that's a side note. But Jesus asked a question and then listened. And notice this, that this lawyer, he asks the right question and he gives the right answer. It's a biblically sound answer, and yet he couldn't be further from the truth. And so here he is. He, he knows the right things. He knows the right answers. It's, it's, you know, the joke is when in Sunday school, when you're asked a question, just say Jesus. Raise your hand and say Jesus, and, and you'll be right. Well, this man is like that. He's got the answers down pat, and yet he's far from the truth. But Jesus paid attention to what he said, and he liked what he heard. And so Jesus said in verse 28, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. That's all Jesus said, a simple comment. You're right. Do this, and you will live. So underneath this man's confidence, though, was a, was a profound insecurity, because it says he's trying to justify himself. So at this point, he's trying to 
to backpedal, and it says this in verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So we have two questions. We have a correct answer. Love God and love your neighbor. And last, we have a revealing story. So Jesus, in response to this, who is my neighbor? Jesus comes up with this parable. And I wanted to get to the parable as soon as possible. But let's look at this parable. Now, you, you might all remember from the past, as we've talked about parables in the past, that a parable was an earthly, fictitious story that remained true to life and had heavenly meanings. Also, parables tended to be simple, straightforward, not giving vast details. They reveal the truth to those who, who are genuinely seeking, but they also conceal the truth from those who are not. Commonly, Jesus had one main point to the parable. And so we should be careful to not read more into the story than was intended by Jesus himself. So with that, let's get into the parable itself, the story, starting in verses 30. Look with me. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which was two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So let's look at the three main characters. So first, the man. We don't know who this man is. Um, we can presume that he was a Jew, and he was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it's a 17-mile trip that drops about 2,000 feet in elevation. And so it's, it's a downward trip. It's very dangerous. There's, there's cliffs and hills. There's caves for robbers to hide in. And so it was, it was not uncommon for people to be robbed on that road. It was a dangerous road. Well, we're told that this man was on that road, and he was robbed and beaten to near death. So this, just picture something that's bloody, gory, messy, and it says he's left naked. They stole everything, even his clothes. So that's the first character. Second character, a priest. A priest was going down that road. Now, priests were organized into 24 different divisions, and they would go to Jerusalem to serve in the temple twice a year. And it says that the priest was coming from Jerusalem. So he's off duty. He's finished his duty. He's going to be on duty again in six months. And he's on his way home. And this, this priest came across this man. Now, of all people, we would expect the priest to step in and help. The priest knew the word of God. Micah 6.8 says to love kindness. Leviticus 19 says to treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as you love yourself. 
This priest knew that. Exodus 23 says that even, even if it's your enemy's animal, stop and help him with his animal, let alone your enemy. So, it, so this priest knows the word of God, and the word calls him to stop and help a stranger. And yet, what does the priest do? He steps to the other side. It would be inconvenient. He stepped to the other side, and he walked on past. Next, we have a Levite, and a Levite was like an assistant to the priest. Same thing. This Levite knew what to do in a scenario like that, and yet what does this Levite do? He passes by on the other side, leaving this man to die. And then along comes a third character, and, and one person said, two religious people and then a lay person? Perfect. People would have loved that. An anti-clerical attitude would have passed muster. And yet, that's not what happened. It wasn't a lay person. It was a Samaritan. The person who came by was a Samaritan. And, and think about this. I would expect Jesus, at this point, the Samaritan says, who is my neighbor? I would expect Jesus to pick someone that the Samaritan could say, okay, so that's how I should be. Insert, insert self. But this this lawyer would not have been able to insert himself at all into the shoes of a Samaritan. Samaritans were a hated people. The, you know, the Jews prayed publicly against and cursed the Samaritans in their synagogues. It was part of their worship service. Also, rabbis told beggars not to even accept money from Samaritans. Even their money was corrupted. Thus was the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. At one point, the Jews were trying to think of something to condemn Jesus. They were just trying to think of the worst name possible to throw at Jesus. And so what did they say? They said, you are a Samaritan who has a demon. And so what does Jesus do? He picks a Samaritan to be the hero of the story. This is an amazing twist in the story. The, the lawyer's question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus does the unexpected. Rather than pick a person and say, that's your neighbor that you should love, he picks a person so utterly unlike the lawyer, he, again, would not have been able to relate with him at all, and says, look at this person. He loves his neighbor. It would have been so offensive, so incredible. We don't, we don't have ears to, to hear how offensive that would have been, but here it is. The Samaritan is different. He had compassion. That means he's not just going through the motions. This particular Samaritan saw the man and had compassion on him, a gut-wrenching sense of care for this man. Regardless of what his plans were, he set everything aside and went after the man. What did he do? He went to him. Number two, he bound up his wounds. Number three, he poured oil and wine on his wounds. And the oil would have been soothing, and the wine would have been in, um, cleansing. And so he's, he's taking all of his supplies for this journey and then he set him on his own animal. So this is a long trip. It's a 17-mile trip. He had 
a vehicle. He just gave up his vehicle and he's walking now. He put this man on his own animal. And we get the sense that the man's unconscious. And so it's not unconscious. It's not like he can even thank him. He's taking care of this man. He brought him to an inn. And then he took care of him all night. Because there he is at this inn taking care of this man. And then the next morning, it says, so he's, picture him nursing him all night long. He's probably on a business trip. He needs his sleep. It's critical. And yet there he is caring for him, giving up sleep all night long, which if you're like me and you give up a night of sleep, it messes you up for several days. It didn't used to. It does now. There he is. And then the next day, he goes to the innkeeper and gives him two denarii. He pulls out his own money. I get the sense that that's all he has because he's ready to pay more, but he, but he doesn't have it. So he gives him basically all that he has. And, and scholars differ on how long that would have kept him in the inn. But at the minimum, it would have paid for two weeks. Maximum, 30 to 40 days. And so he pays for him to continue to receive care. And to make sure he gets the best of care, for those of you who have seen Les Miserables and saw how the daughter was treated, he told him, blank check. Whatever this costs you, I will take care of it when I return. I'm coming back, and I'm going to cover all expenses. So he gave him a blank check. Basically, he said, here's my bank account. Take whatever you need to care for this stranger that I don't know. So after telling the story, Jesus asked the lawyer another question. Look with me at verses 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he, the lawyer, said, the one who showed him mercy. You see, th this was so in your face of the lawyer that he couldn't even mention the name of the Samaritan. So he just says the one. You can just kind of picture him, kind of that one. He can't deny it. The one who showed him mercy. And what does Jesus say? Again, Jesus is on this great evangelistic mission, and he's just asking questions. And he says this, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Now, there's a great warning here as well. And I'm going to go back to that story of the Johnstown flood. Do you know that messages were sent to Johnstown from the club at this point? They're finally recognizing their mistake. And they sent messages down to the town to say, to warn them that the dam might give. But after years of false alarms, after years of nothing happening, the messages were ignored. The water began to top the, the dam, and eventually it gave way. The water crashed down the valley, sweeping trees, rail cars, and entire houses in its path. By the time the, two, the 20 million tons of water reached Johnstown, it was carrying even more debris. The mass hit the city, flattening everything in its path until it was stopped by an immense stone bridge at the far end of the town. And unfortunately, the stone bridge held, which caused the water to flood the entire town rather than just sweep through. And the entire mass of wires, wood, rail cars, and bodies caught fire. 
It was considered, the, the, the article is titled, Johnstown Flood, the worst dam failure in U.S. history. It was a horrible event. And the tragedy of it, the very people who knew about the danger didn't listen to the danger on the morning of because it, it, they just heard it. It was always that background noise. And it had never amounted to anything before. Well, now we move to application. And we would do well. This isn't application for other people. This is application for us. What do we get from this? It's, again, it's so easy. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard this story and read it. And, and I mean, I can, I can give some answers in my sleep. But there's something for us here right now. And I, I suggest three things. And, and there, there's nothing new here, nothing exciting. But I think it's beautiful. Number one, fix your eyes on Jesus, our Savior. Fix your eyes on Jesus, our Savior. We see this story. Do you see yourself in this story? There's so many different places where you can see yourself. And, and I want to suggest, first of all, that you just see yourself as that Jew beaten up naked in the ditch. You know that the Bible describes us before we became to know the Lord as dead in our sins. In fact, that's the worst kind of beaten up and bruised you can imagine. Dead. There we were. And you know that Jesus, when he came, it says that Jesus looked at the crowds and he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Sin has truly left us more than just beaten and bruised. It's left us dead. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. And, and here we see that Jesus, he is the good shepherd, but I think it's appropriate. You know, in our, our members' agreement, we say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Well, look at this and preach the gospel to yourself. When you were dead and helpless, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ came. He saw us. He came to us. Praise God. If you're a Christian here today, aren't you glad he didn't pass by like the, like the priest and the Levite? He stopped. He took care of us. He bound our wounds. He healed us. In fact, he who knew no sin became sin for us. It's as if he switched places with us. It's as if he said, all of your wounds are nothing. I'm going to take upon myself the eternal weight of judgment that you deserve. Jesus bore it all for us. Fix your eyes on the Savior. Praise God he had compassion. Praise God his heart went out to us. And praise God he gave up everything for us. Everything. Not just a blank check. I'll come back in good health and, and, and pay the rest of the bill. He gave his own life. The Bible says that, actually, I'm going to read it. It says that, that he, I'm sorry, now I'm committed. I could have, just a few minutes ago, I could have moved on without it, but I can't now. No, the Bible says that, that he gave absolutely everything 
for us in our state. He became nothing. He became absolutely nothing. Ah, I found it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Fix your eyes on Jesus our Savior. Thank him. Thank him again and again. If you're not a Christian here, know that he's not an ogre up in heaven ready to just crush you. He is that Savior who says, come to me, all who are heavy, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's who he is. Fix your eyes on our Savior. Number two, fix your eyes on Jesus, our righteousness. You know, this call for us to do this is a real call. That's not just pie in the sky. Hey, I'm just going to say this so that they'll feel the weight of it, and then they'll turn to Jesus, the Savior. Yeah, that's part of it. The, the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. It's there for us to see and feel the weight of the requirement. But it's also something that we must do. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God is perfect. He can't be around sin. And so we have this incredible call to be that Samaritan and to live like that. But not one of you has. I haven't. And don't kid yourself to think you have. I've talked to many people who have said this exact thing to me. Well, you know, I don't, I don't need the organized religion because I, I follow the golden rule, love my neighbor as myself. Do you, do you follow that? Do I follow that? I want to. Do you know how many, just the other day, my neighbor called, and I didn't get the, the phone call, Anne, I think Ann did, but it was like, hey, can you send Dave over? She was having car problems. And first of all, car problems intimidate me. But I didn't get home. And by the time I was driving up, this was on Saturday, um, th- th- there was another neighbor who was there helping her with her car. And, and I saw what was going on. I thought, man, I'm glad he's there. And I got home and then Ann told me, yeah, she called to see if, if you could help. And I thought, wow, praise God that other neighbor is there. And... <laughs> You know, when I pass accidents on the, on the, on the road, I, I, I just hope and pray there's someone there. And I've never had to stop at one, um, but would I? You know, how far are you willing to go to care for your neighbor? How far are you willing to go to care for your enemy? We fall short. And here's the wonderful news, that Jesus not only saved us when we were dead and beaten, along the side of the road, but he also is our righteousness. Now, these are two theological applications. Look to Jesus, your Savior. Look to Jesus, your righteousness. He is the one who obeyed God's law perfectly in our place. And when we put our faith in him, he clothes us in his perfect righteousness. He not only takes our rags, but then he gives us credit for what he did. So that when God looks at you, if you put your faith in Jesus, then he sees you like he sees that Samaritan. Well done. Well done. It's a wonderful transaction. He takes our sin, saves us, but then he also gives us credit and clothes us in his righteousness so that the words we will hear one day from our Father is this, well done, good and faithful servant. 
So two very important applications. But there's a third. Fix your eyes on Jesus, our example. This comes to us in the form of a command. Make no mistake, this is a command. Jesus said, do this and you will live. Do this or go and do. Go and do. Again, that's not, he's, he's not just saying, well, really, I'm not asking you to go and do. No, no, go and do. It's a command. Second Timothy says this, and the Lord's servant must be kind to everyone. This isn't a one-off act of kindness. Maybe there was something you did this week and, and you've just kind of been encouraged about it. That happens to me, and I, and I think, oh, yeah, that was such a bright moment. But this is, a, this is a command to go and do. This is a lifestyle that we are being called to. Like Jesus saw the crowds, and they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion. We're called to do the same. My new life in Christ is a life that involves the following simple command. Go and do. It's a life that sees the needs around you, and rather than ignore them, Press in, move towards the mess. I love the story in, again, 2 Corinthians. It's, it's this gospel. Jesus gave up everything. Well, right before that, it points to this group of Macedonians. And there was a need in Jerusalem. They were, they, they, there was a famine, and, and they had no money, and they, they needed really help. They, they needed help. And, and it says this. Paul said, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. Well, what do you do when there's a need around you? You've got joy and extreme poverty. Does that make you think, well, I can't help, but, you know, what did they do? It says, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and as I can testify, Paul says, beyond their means of their own accord, begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They are extremely poor, and yet they are begging that they can give money that they don't have to support these other people who are in need. Oh, God, for more of that. I want more of that. Joy. Joy. Do you know it's more blessed to give than to receive? God, help us to, to learn that more and more. God, help us to see what's going on. And yes, you're busy. I'm busy. But to stop, put things aside, and to care for those around us. We need, we need help here. Because of Jesus, we are free to say, I'm not okay. I'm the guy beaten and bruised, but I have a Savior who had compassion on me and loved me and gave up everything he had for me. And Jesus became my record of righteousness. I'm clothed in his robes of perfect righteousness. But this same Jesus loves me too much to leave me as a self-absorbed sinner. And he's changing me more and more over time. 
God, have your way among us. This is the path of true joy, the path of the Samaritan. We need help, don't we? Let me pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful example of selflessness. And Lord, I think I, think I can speak for myself and my brothers and sisters. We need help. Oh, God, would you help us to take this to heart? God, may we be people that hold everything that we have with open hands. Our time, our finances, Lord, our, our service. God, this life is so short. Lord, help us to simply treat others as we would have them treat us. Again, we need your help, but you are a faithful God, and you are at work in our lives, so we praise you for that. And Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you, I pray that they would just look up and say, help, Lord, for you are truly eager to save. And Lord, for those of us here who are, are kind of like the lawyer or the Pharisee, or the priest, or the Levite, and who just don't want to be bothered with other things. We might be able to quote the verses, and we might be able to give right answers, but we really don't know you, the Savior, who gave everything, and we certainly don't have love for our neighbors. God, if there's anybody here that fits that description, oh, Lord, have mercy. Lord, open all of our eyes to see our own pride. And again, help us to extend ourselves for those who are weak and needy and helpless all around us. In Jesus' name, amen.